to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining me here is Glenn Fitzgerald, the founder of Mission USA. I'm having software problems and I'm eating a banana. A memoir that will be <laughs> undeniable once it's written. Also joining us, Director of Mission USA Productions, Jed Brewer. It must be nice to be eating a banana. Jealous banana guy is Jed's characters are getting a bit esoteric at this point, but <laughs> he's exploring the space. Joining us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church, Lee Younger. I feel judged by the fact that Glenn is eating healthy food, and it feels like he's eating healthy food at the rest of the hosts of the podcast. Take the hint. I assume there's a big <laughs> jar of caramel he's dipping that banana in just <laughs> off of the Skype call that we can't see. We don't have proof of not that. <laughs> well, gentlemen, uh, obviously, normally we like to get right into it, but unfortunately, I'm forced to declare an emergency. What? Uh-huh. I know. And this time, it's the rare positive emergency. There's probably some kind of word for that, but I don't know it. Probably something German. In this case, <laughs> it is a emergency of comparison. We, we, you know, in the last show, we talked about uh, some church reopening with, uh, with the coronavirus stuff. And folks, by the way, I know the last episode was a little coronavirus heavy. Um, we answer the questions that come in. So if you want to talk, want to talk about other stuff, go ahead and write in. So at podcast at gmail.com. But also in that conversation, Lee was mentioning the need to innovate. And they're doing that down there at Triple C with their own online stuff. We're doing our, our live bridge cast. Uh, folks are sending, you know, Triple C down there. We're trying uh, to send like DVDs to jail. And there's lots of ways to do ministry if you're willing to be creative. And I found in my own life recently, a creative ministry strategy from an unexpected source. Okay. This came to to my home via the United States Postal Service, a fine, fine institution of which, of course, all patriotic Americans support. (laughs) And I just give it a minute. Just give it a minute. (laughs) And it came from an unexpected source. It came to my wife, who who, uh, recently moved out here to to the, uh, the village we live in. And this person said, hello, and they didn't even finish it. Like They didn't like even insert the name. That's how much of a form letter this is. Just hello, comma. My name is, then there's the name, I am one of Jehovah's Witnesses. This mm. is already a strong start. I hope this letter finds you well, despite having to cope with the current crisis we are all facing. As COVID-19 cases are on the rise and governments have further escalated their responses to the virus, We respectfully adhere to current social distancing guidelines. Consequently, we have not come to your door to talk face-to-face with you as we would normally. And then it kind of translations into here's the Bible verses about the thing and we want to subscribe to the newsletter and all that stuff. Here's what I'm saying. I think the Jehovah's Witnesses may may be being the most sensitive and least weird church people currently, and I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, that is, that's bewildering. Like, look, and we don't, we don't judge. We don't, you know, not willing to put down what anyone believes. But as far as your uh, things, what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe is a little out there. And they're yeah. not shy about it. They don't really try to hide that, you know, with the no birthday parties and whatnot. But when they say, you know, we believe in the things we believe in. But of course, you have to respect the social distancing guidelines. <laughs> That's just science. <laughs> you have to be part of society if you want to reach people. Wow. Well, I love the tone of, look, we wanted to bug you very badly. It's our whole thing. <laughs> we wanted to intrude on what you had going on in a way it was completely uninvited. But we thought we'd stop just short of sneezing some virus into your face. <laughs> and that's just some nice, polite approach to the whole... So let's, we'll send you a nice email. And when you think about it like that, they're really saving you from a pandemic, Matthew. Uh, no and doubt about it. The, the pandemic's trying to get in my door every day. Well, you, and you say there, Glenn, email. I want to, again, point out, this is a, a written letter Oh. Which in the in the uh, you know the era we're doing all these high tech things, are we overlooking things we could get out of with a letter? Oh, oh yeah, because Glenn yeah. points out, and I don't know, and in, in the individual Jehovah's Witness in in uh, 
in case. Here's what I hope is that I'm sure they have some sort of quota of doors to knock or people to talk to or whatever. Yeah. And I'm hoping this is a person who found a loophole. Yes. And was like, yes, yes. I technically reached out to hundreds like this is of an people. unauthorized outreach. Yes, absolutely. I love someone who finds the hitch in the system and exploits it. But to that point, as so if we take that fiction, this might be a person who, you know, they believe with the 144,000 and all the, the deal, but they aren't really into the walking around, knocking on people's doors. And they found a way out of it. And I think that's the kind of thing we should be looking for more of in the church. Dude. Well, what's occurring to me right now is, you know, I have neighbors because I live in an urban environment and I should interact with my neighbors because it's a neighborly thing to do. But I'm antisocial. And I'm wondering if I can just send a form letter to my neighbors that says, hello, this constitutes your social encounter with me. That's it. Social distancing. (laughs) That's right. Then I did it. That's finding the sunny side because it's the perfect excuse. You say, hi, I just moved into your neighborhood, and obviously I'd love to have a slightly too long conversation with you about the other people that live in this neighborhood who you don't like for reasons even you can't remember. But due to COVID, I'm just going to have to send you this letter that says, I live here now. Bye. <laughs> I like the idea of the, uh, the, you know, you think about different translations of the scriptures. There's a there's a scripture at, at the very end of the Bible in the, the, the very small letter of second John that says uh, in second John verse 12, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. I like the idea of translating the Bible in the COVID standard version, the CSV. Okay. okay. Where you say, I have much to say to you, but I don't want to do so face-to-face, which would spread the deadly global pandemic virus, but I hope to do so with you over pen and ink in a letter or a FaceTime call so as to protect you from certain death. Yes. Yes. I like that. I also like this as some kind of church marketing strategy because it does make it seem very, with I don't want to speak in pen and ink, does make it seem kind of very um, uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I feel like you'd really yeah. spin that up be like, I have much to tell you, but I've already said too much. Sign on to ChristCommunityChurch.org for more. Well, I listen, I love the idea of mail-in neighboring. I think this oh, is, yeah. I think we could do this in all sorts of areas of life. Just, just mail it in, man. I love that it's the opposite of phoning it in. Don't phone it in. Yeah. Mail it in. Yeah, mailing in shows you care. Right? All I guess. the most important things in our society can and should be mailed in. That's well, right. nothing here in the year 2020. I, I have an idea because, Matt, you know, you were wondering what are the church applications of this? As I always am. Okay. So, you know, we've all been, you know, to the church or watching the live stream of the church where the worship leader wants to do the 800th chorus of the Chris Tomlin song, right? Sure. Clearly. Here's what I'm saying I just write out the lyrics in a letter and send them to him. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I did it. I participated. I joined you in the song. You'd be like, this one I wrote in italics, I was doing a harmony. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I think, though, Jed, you have to make sure you have 80 copies of it. I mean, it's a pretty big stack of paper, <laughs> but I think you got you to gotta do it. You know? Okay. F- excellent. Follow-up idea. <laughs> We've all been, you know, to, to churches and the pastor, he, he wants the amens and he's, you know, trying to ask for him a little bit too much. You just send him a letter. Amen. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now. This is no, no, no kidding. I, I hate to break in on you, Matt, and I'm sorry about this. I think but, I was going to bring up the thing you're about to tell. Yeah, and no kidding. We did have a situation where people uh, at our church said, if I'm uncomfy because I'm just so repressed. Can I text you the word amen? I can't no make a noise way. in the house of the Lord. <laughs> no, no kidding, brother. I have received text messages from excessively, uh, what would we say, spiritually constipated human beings <laughs> who have sent me the word amen on a text message because they're so afraid of what people think about that. With timestamp technology, so you know it was actually during the sermon. They didn't do it afterwards a bit. That's right. Wow. I'm just delighted. 
it's it's exceptional. Um, I really like uh, Jed's worship leader um, version of this because I think it brings the perfect contrast for us to close this emergency out on, which is also in the last couple of weeks, there was uh, a very uh, big like uh, mega church worship team. I was like, you know, Hillsong or Bethel or one of those. I can't remember which one. But they did a 5,000 person worship concert. For real? In San Diego, no masks. Dude, are you serious? Oh yeah. Wow. What? Here's the deal. The 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 thought of those people was, man, you know, it's tough. You got the pandemic and the economy and you know what people really really need is for me to get on a stage and be Christian at them. <laughs> at the risk of their health. And to those very famous, very influential Christian people, I unfortunately have to say Take a lesson from the Jehovah's Witnesses and just don't impose yourself on people. <laughs> well, that 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 all of that is hard to swallow. Also, just from a imaging and branding standpoint, um disease spreader is probably not the one that you want. Dude, if you're a death metal band, disease spreader is fine. That's very That's fine. on brand. Totally. I mean, you yes. literally you start your your show. Hello, we are pestilence. I mean, like that's right. cool, yeah. That's man. That's rad. cool. Yeah. All right. It's yeah. not a great business model, but you know, there has to be a Norwegian metal band named Super Spreader, right? <laughs> well, they've got like a shoebox that's filled with locusts, and they just open the shoebox, and locusts just. <laughs> We are disease spreader. We're here to rock you. Pestilence. That's cool. Every concert is a super spreader event. Yeah. <laughs> you want that in a death metal band, but just disease-ridden is not an image you want to uh, foster, I don't think. Probably not. Probably not. And on that very wise and important point, we will declare emergency off. Now, of course, we are continuing to keep things nice and virtual, but you can, if you want to find out how to write physical mail to us, you can check out our Bridge Livecast, where in a series of descending into madness visual presentations based on artworks, I will give you the, the address you can write to us, P.O. Box 216 Forest Park, Illinois. But if you need a reminder, you can head on over to Facebook.com slash The Bridge Chicago Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. Check out our Bridge Livecast. You can also, of course, sign up for BridgeBox and MissionUSA.com slash BridgeBox. We are going to jump to our first question here. Came in anonymously. If you hang out with us all the way to the end, I'll use some ways to get in touch with us. Or you can scroll down into your episode description. This first question comes in anonymously and says, Why do we always put other people before God? What does God think when we do that? And what's the right way of handling that? And an excellent question, a recent, a recent topic on our Bridge Livecast. And Glenn, where would we start off? Well, yeah, I think, first of all, it's just one of those things that everybody has done that. We, we all do that in little ways and in large ways all the time. I mean, it, it, it seems like such a fundamental thing to get wrong. And so it's, it's easy for us to vilify ourselves off of that. But I think it is good to... Uh, strip away the guilt and the shame of that and really look at the functionality of it, the, the process mm -hmm. of it and the way it works. And one of the things I touched on in that uh, sermon on, uh, uh, on our, our Facebook Live service that I want to expand on here is this idea of sometimes we have a spiritual need, but we think of it as an emotional need or a physical need. So if I'm if I have let's say uh, my my I have a, a spiritual need for joy because there's a lot of darkness and struggle and strife that's happening in the world and I just I'm starved for joy. But do I think of it as you know? Do you wake up and read the news and get upset and then say I need to pray and receive joy in this moment? I, I, if, if you do, you're a better person than me. What I say is, 
I need to do something to make myself happy and I need to right. go somewhere and buy something or yep. talk to somebody, you know, I need to, whatever it is. I think of it as an emotional need. I think of it as a physical need. I need to go shopping. I need to go uh, buy a big hamburger and just eat it and all my bad feelings will go away and so forth. So I think it's important to recognize that it won't work that way, that you have spiritual needs and they can only be met in a spiritual way. Uh, so that when we try to use physical things to meet that emotional need, it's always going to fall short. It's always not quite going to work. And when things don't quite work, it's that's a recipe for working it twice as hard to get it to work. And it just never quite works anyway. So I think the the thing I really want to leave you with is this idea of looking at all the uh, feelings that you have of emptiness, inadequacy, the struggles that you have, the frustrations you have, and ask how much of that is just a spiritual need that isn't being met. Can I name that as a spiritual problem as opposed to an emotional and, and physical problem? In some cases, it is just a physical thing or an emotional thing, but I think zeroing in on where those things begin and end are really important. Final point, just to uh, you know, tack on the end of this thing, Spiritual needs are met in stillness. If you, and I'm preaching that to myself, believe me when I tell you, I'm preaching that to myself as hard as I'm preaching it to you. For me, I'm usually uh, living, uh, you know, three months in the future at least, and I am extremely frustrated that I'm not there right now and already fixing the problems that I foresee happening there and whatever else. Uh, so much of us spend time sort of uh, striving into the future. Some of us spend a lot of time on our past and just turning that over in our minds and just constantly uh, obsessing over those things. But all of that is the opposite of stillness. Uh, stillness is about uh, being present in this moment. It's about being right here and right now. Uh, you know, when the Bible says, be still and know I'm God, he means, uh, yes, to to calm our mind, to calm our thoughts and be still in that way. Uh, he means to, for us to be still in our body to whatever extent we can manage that. But he means to be present in this moment, be be with him right here, right now, expressing those spiritual needs. And when you are in that state, you are in a position to receive the spiritual needs that you have. Trying to do that in the midst of stoking up frustration, in the midst of just constantly letting things pile up on you, that's going to be a lot tougher. So uh, find that stillness and name it as a spiritual need where it is and receive what you need from the Lord. A really, really excellent place to start off. And Jeff, I'd love to get you to pick us up there. Let's look at the specific question our friend asks of what does God think when we put other people before God? God understands. God totally gets why that seems like a good idea or a necessary idea or a convenient idea. He totally, totally understands. Um, to, to borrow from another person, uh, when God says don't in the Bible, he is saying don't hurt yourself. and God understands why it makes sense to put other people before him. He also understands that it's not going to work well, which is why he's urging you not to do that. Um, there are all kinds of things in in life that feel either like a good idea or a necessary idea that if we follow them for, you know, more than the first couple of steps, just are not going to work out very well. And it turns out that when we give people an undue amount of power and influence in our lives, because that's that's really what we're talking about here, uh it just it just doesn't end well. You know, if you if you think about it, there there's almost a parallel here for someone who um is is not a religious person or not a spiritual person, uh, which is, would it work out well 
if I just sold out the things that I believed in most in order to make the people around me happy, would that work out well? Because we're basically talking about the same thing. And the answer to that, again, would be no. We can all see why the idea would appeal to you. You you want to be liked. You want to be accepted. You want to have togetherness and community and family and romance and all those things. And, and it feels like, well, if I just kind of don't do the thing that I really believe in that I really want to do and just kind of do what this other person wants, I'll probably be able to you know, make the situation go. And then later I could probably circle back and kind of, you know, even it all out anyway. That, that thought makes total sense. You know, we can, we can all track with that. There's, you know, it's not something even that you need to feel ashamed or bad about it. Cause it's, it totally tracks. It just won't work. It actually won't go anywhere good. It won't, it won't wind up in a good place. The one other detail on it that God also understands is that if we're dealing with a situation where we're going to kind of have to disappoint somebody, um, we're either going to disappoint this other person or we're going to kind of disappoint ourselves, so to speak. The cheapest price to pay is always going to be right now. I want you to think about that for a second. If you need to disappoint somebody, it's never going to get any easier than to go ahead and get that over with now. We have a way of thinking, well, let me kind of not do that now, but later when the time is just right, I'll speak up and say something and make it clear that, you know, I, I kind of need to, to do my own thing here. It turns out that time just never really happens. There's, there's never yeah. a convenient time where everything's just right to disappoint another human being, which means the best time to do it is now. Um, the best time to do it is to, is to do it now and, and get it over. It, it won't be pleasant, but it's, it's a lot better than the alternative. So what does God think? He understands, but he also understands that this isn't going to go the places that you want it to go in your life. It's not going to go the places he wants it to go in your life. And that we would do better if we're dealing with kind of a fundamental mismatch between what your friend wants or your, your parent wants or whatever, and, and what God would have you do, or even what your own heart would have you do. We do better to confront that and be clear about that right now. That is an excellent, excellent place to take that. And Lee, where would we close this out? Well, I love exactly what, what Jed is saying, and, and I would come in on the same note of the idea that God understands. One thing I would say about this is it makes total sense that you would have an instinct of putting people before God. One thing that's just completely practical is that you can see people. You can talk to them. In normal times outside of a global pandemic, you can hug them, you can shake their hand, you can wrap your arm around them, that whole thing. You have immediate feedback, emotional and physical and audible feedback from human beings that you are in relationship with. So it makes sense that you put those relationships up very high in your reckoning. Um, not only that, but if you serve somebody, if you meet their need and you see their life changed or bettered because of that, that is an immediate response inside your heart. That's an immediate thing that says, I have made the world a better place because I've served this person. There is a, it's funny because in the Christian world and as Christians, and, and for me, I get this because I was raised in a certain type of Christian environment. When we talk about putting people before the Lord, we immediately think of just taking that to the level of idolatry. But there is an honorable thing about putting people um, before the Lord in the sense of, and hang with me for a second, because this can sound a little wonky, but just hang with me, in that you wind up sometimes putting people before yourself. Um, when you wind up caring about other people and meeting their needs and putting their needs before your own needs. And sometimes that winds up being before the Lord, but in a good way, that winds up being you putting other people's needs before yourself. The thing that I would say right on the tails of what Jed is talking about is that the Lord understands this completely. And he understands that you have immediate feedback from people, that you see them, that you hear them, that you sometimes you know, in a normal situation, that you have even physical response and affection from them. 
What's really interesting about the Lord is that understanding this about us and the impact that that has on us emotionally, physically, spiritually, he has created a system whereby there are people in the world who are the recipients of our service and love on behalf of the Lord. This is really, really interesting. I mean, there's a... There's a way in which, like, the the church environment that I grew up in was very much like, you have to put God first, and if you don't put God first, then then you haven't put God in your reckoning at all. Um, and when you read the New Testament, you find the Lord saying, actually, um, if you visit prisoners, you're caring about me. If you feed poor people, you're feeding me. If you write to someone who's incarcerated, you're writing a letter to me. Do you see what's happening here? The Lord understands the way that you would be um that you would have an inclination to put people before your before the Lord and before yourself. And he has a way of of kind of loopholing that to making it a good thing. To making it a thing where he is the recipient of your love and service. Because he understands the way that you're put together. And he knows that your true fulfillment will come from putting him and his kingdom first. He has actually set up a system whereby you care about somebody who's having a hard time. You're actually caring about him in the midst of that. That is unbelievably gracious. That's amazing. What that means is, is that while I'm learning in the process, in the, just in the, you know, uh, going through figuring out what it means to put the Lord first in my life and getting all this amazing feedback and all this kind of spiritual um, fulfillment and stuff from serving other people and putting, and sometimes probably putting them out of balance before the Lord, the Lord is still receiving from me love and worship and care and all of that stuff through them as recipients. The Lord knows that you that that you feel amazing when you serve somebody who's down and out, who's having a hard time. And what he says is, I know that putting my kingdom first is going to bring you the most fulfillment. While you're in the process of figuring that out, I will receive love from you while you serve somebody else. Man, that's beautiful. That's amazing. He set up a system where you learn how to put him first by Basically, by putting yourself in the backseat and putting other people in front of yourself, because that's the real thing that's the stepping stone is getting past self and getting to a place where we're serving people who are in need. And, and through that, learning how to serve the Lord. That is all fantastic stuff. I just want to attack on the end real quick here, tying together kind of what all these guys gave you, because I love how beautifully they work together. So Glenn starts out talking about trying to meet a spiritual need with a non-spiritual uh, means. That could be emotional, that could be physical, and we get in a way of putting some non-spiritual things, people above a spiritual thing that's gone. And then Jed talks talked to us about uh, God understanding and making sense, him uh, empathizing, and then Lee took us through a solution to how we get to the end of that to not do that. The amazing thing about that is that comes with giving yourself some understanding because the, the thing that would stop that process. If you walk through that three step process, these guys gave you would be if at any point you decided that I don't need to understand why I do this. It's just naughty and I should do better. That's, that's kind of the enemy of progress. You know, so I don't, I don't understand why I do bad things and I wouldn't even want to understand what good can come from that. If you give yourself a little bit of a break, and start to understand those things, then you can counter-program them. Then you can get on the growth that we're talking about here, and it's a very, very good place to be. I'm going to jump to our second question here. It comes in anonymously, and it says, My partner has started seeking therapy for for some problems they have, which is great. I've realized that years of being with someone who has those issues has taken a toll on me. Should I get therapy too? Is that a thing? And a very cool idea and a great question. And Jed, let me just start us off. Maybe not so much talking about the the uh, partner in therapy aspect, but that broader idea of being around people who are going through something definitely is something that can have a toll on you. That's worth uh, reckoning with, right? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, an, an immediate example of this is um, most people have heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a great program. It's lovely. It's beautiful. Um, not as many people are familiar with kind of the sister program, which is called Al-Anon, and it is specifically for the family members of an addict uh, because it turns out that um, being around a lot of very dysfunctional behavior really takes a toll um, and that perhaps not in all cases, but often we develop our own dysfunctional coping mechanisms to, to deal with that behavior that we're around. So you're wondering, is that a thing? It, it definitely is a thing. And Al-Anon is a great program, man. It, it helps a lot of people. It's a really, really cool thing. More broadly, the idea of I'd like to have a situation where I'm getting some support, like there's just a person or people who just they want to see me do well, and I'm getting a sense of perspective in my life. Just, you know, people are kind of helping me check how I'm looking at myself and, and reality in my situation and that I'm getting some tools to better deal with the situations in which I find myself. Again, kind of that combo of support and perspective and tools. Man, that is great stuff. Um, I don't know that I could think of anyone who wouldn't benefit from that trio of things. Um, There's a variety of different ways to get those things. Uh, Therapy is actually, can be a great way to do that. Uh, That can be with someone who's a therapist. That can be with someone who's a counselor. Um, Again, if you know a really good pastor that you have a good relationship with and you trust, that that can be a part of that. There are also all kinds of support groups that exist to, again, to do those same things, to provide support to give perspective, to give tools for dealing with the challenges that you're facing. Um, Al-Anon is a great one if that is related to your experience. We actually think very highly of Celebrate Recovery, um, which has a lot of very similar focuses, a lot of similar aims, a lot of similar goals. One of the things that we would encourage you on is that it this is a case of different strokes for different folks. So again, the idea of support perspective and tools. I don't think I've ever met anyone who wouldn't benefit from more of those things. Like there's, I, it would be weird to say, Nope, I'm full up on all of that. But with, with that in mind, not every therapist or approach to therapy is going to work for every person. And similarly, not every AA meeting or Al-Anon meeting or celebrate recovery meeting is the same. Um, you know, there, there are people like, you know, if you know, if you talk to folks that are in addiction recovery, they will talk about there was this meeting that I went to on 32nd Street and it was really, really good. And then over time it changed and it just wasn't a great fit anymore. And I needed to find a different meeting. Um, so the, the point there is just different strokes for different folks. You find what works for you. Someone might have a therapist that they go to who's really, really helpful for them who maybe they're not the world's greatest fit for you, that's okay. We can try something else. The other thing that we would want to encourage you on is that everybody's economic situation is different. Their job situation is different. Their benefit situation is different. So with that in mind, I want to encourage you to not discount or, or kind of reject out of hand the idea that you would have access to these things. Um, if you would like to have access to therapy and counseling, in addition to kind of a support group, most places have people who provide either free or low cost or sliding scale counseling. Um, we've done plenty of work helping people find those in their areas. So, uh, if that's stuff that you'd like, if it's stuff that you feel like you're in a place where that would really be a benefit to you, please don't let cost be, um, something that stops you. Uh, if you're not sure how to approach that, reach out to us. We'd love to help you find that because, again, we could all use a bit more support and perspective and better tools for dealing with the challenges we Amen. face in life. That's really a fantastic place to start that off. And, Lee, I'd love to get you to unpack that a little bit more because it feels like a lot of what's going on in the question is certainly something we hear from people a lot, particularly when it comes to seeking uh, professional help, is that idea of, is my situation severe enough to warrant this type of step? You know, obviously, and it's right. understandable in this case when you have a maybe a partner who has a maybe a more diagnosed or pronounced idea to say, well, if therapy is the thing they're getting, do I have something that warrants that? But I think as Jed's pointing out, 
that may not be the the healthiest way to look at this, right? Absolutely. L- let me let me start answering this by by telling a quick story. Um, recently, I was talking to uh, the husband of a of a couple for whom I did uh, some premarital counseling uh, before they got married, and they they've been married a short time. And uh, this guy started texting me and said, you know, we're having a rough time. We're having some some arguments that we didn't see coming and stuff like that. And and um, and I'm encouraging my wife that that we should come and talk to you in the same way that we talked, like in premarital counseling. And that made her uncomfortable because it made her feel like we've we failed as a married couple. Like, does that mean we need marriage counseling? You know, we we had premarital counseling, which is something everybody does. But now, if we come and talk to you, does that mean that we now need premar or that we, we now would need marriage counseling? And the thing that I said to this dude was. Let me say something to you. Um, everybody needs somebody to talk to. Yup. Everybody. Um, every married couple would benefit from having a third party they trust that helps them look at the situation and get better at what they're doing. Period. Um, I said, what do you think is, I asked this dude, what do you think's behind that comment? And he said, I think that what she's saying is, if we have to come and talk to you, we have failed as a married couple. And I said, bingo, you nailed it. That's the whole thing. That's what's holding everybody back from talking to a therapist or a counselor or a pastor or even a friend is, if I have to talk to somebody outside of us or outside of myself, I have failed. If we could, if we could cut the blue wire on that bomb right there and 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 nobody felt shame about that piece of the puzzle, then we could say to everyone, bar none, hey, guess what, world? Everybody would do well with therapy. Everybody. Everybody would benefit from counseling. I would suggest it for anybody at any point, at any time. You would have a good experience from having a good counselor whom you trust that listens to you and helps you see your situation from a different perspective. This is all super helpful stuff. I say all that to say this. I would say to any human being at any point in their life, if they said, do you think I should talk to someone? I would say, absolutely, 100%, bar none. That's the most buttoned up person. If Glenn asked me, do you think I should talk to someone? I would say, yes. Because no one has their stuff figured out, y'all. No one. No one has their stuff figured out. So we all could benefit from somebody outside of us who in a caring, calm, measured way listens to our situation and suggests a different perspective and a strategy that might help us move forward. This is a benefit, whether you're dealing with somebody else's difficult situation or your own. And here's the key thing. If we could get over the hurdle that somehow talking to a, to a counselor is uh, an admission of failure, then we would all be a lot more comfortable with this. I say all of that to say this. Whoever you are, listening to the words that are coming out of my face right now, look at your healthcare situation and see if you have some provision for a counselor or a professional or, as Jed said, a, a pastor whom you trust, and, and set an appointment. Uh, my guess is you will benefit from that meeting. If not, let's look for another one. The second one, my guess is you'll benefit from that meeting. None of us has our stuff figured out, and that's okay. And if we could get past the idea that talking to someone means we have failed in some way, then we would all gain a lot of wisdom and perspective from the idea that someone outside of us can help us understand our emotions, our responses, our behaviors, and, our, and, our, and the way that we have lived our life so far. That is all fantastic stuff, especially there was a moment— when Lee said, whoever you are, and I thought things were about to get real Liam Neeson-y, and I'm, I'm very <laughs> relieved that it pulled back to a very uh, heartfelt and helpful suggestion about seeking help. And Glenn, I think uh, you're the first person to answer this, because one of the things that can often, I think, stand in the way of people who've never done something like this before 
uh, be that with pastor or certainly with a, a, a professional, a mental health professional, is that idea of, I just don't know what this is going to be. Is it going to be overwhelming? Yeah. Is it going to be uh, really emotionally draining? And what are the kind of things that someone who's seeking help for something like this might start looking at when they meet with someone who's who's walking them through getting some solutions? Well, I think uh, the opportunity to to just be heard, to be listened to, uh, ought to feel uh, like uh, you ought to feel like that would be refreshing and uh, uh, relieving uh, in certain ways. That you'd feel better off of that. And uh, and as Lee is saying, you know, that's a get to, not a have to. It's not an admission of problems. It's getting to a place that's healthy. You know, it's like going to the gym. It's it, it, people don't go to the gym because they admit that they are are a lump of uh, you know goo. They they're they're saying, "Hey, you know, I, I want to be healthy." So, uh here's the thing. I'm hearing this question come in on a certain frequency if I if, if I'm way off, let me know, but I do a, a certain amount of counseling with couples where it's presented to me in the following way. Uh, the, one partner says about the other partner, so-and-so over here has a problem and a struggle and an issue, and I'm the supportive one that's supporting the person that has the problem. So this one's a problem child, and I'm the angelic uh, uh, just you know, just braving it out and, and hanging on in there. And I'm, uh, that's my role. And that's what I'm dealing with. Uh, and then I start asking questions about, well, how are you doing with confrontation? How are you doing with setting boundaries? How, how are you doing with uh, helping set up goals and, uh, you know, uh, providing some structure here? And then it turns out that's not happening. What's happening is what we call enabling. So it isn't one messed up one and one person that's doing pretty good and probably doesn't need any kind of counseling. Uh, it's, it's a system that has broken down and everyone is participating in that system in a certain kind of way. Um, I don't know what your family background is, but uh, a lot of people uh, that find themselves in dysfunctional relationships they're playing out the roles that they played in their family. So if they had someone in their family that acted a certain way, they reacted a certain way. If you find yourself doing those same kind of reactions in your marriage, then you're just playing out a cycle that you've been a subject to beforehand. All of this is a is an opportunity for you to recognize there and and I think there's a, a freedom in this and a joy and a peace in this. Of instead of characterizing it as one person with a problem and another person who's, you know, bravely soldiering through that, and really looking at this entire system needs to change, and that includes me. Mm. Uh, th- that's not putting the blame yes. on you or shifting it around or everybody has to take a bit of the blame. It's simply saying. The whole thing needs to be uh, shook up. You will likely find that uh, at some point uh, your partner's uh, therapist may want you to be part of that therapy. That would be pretty standard practice, depending on what the situation is. So you you know you may end up in that position and have that opportunity uh, to explore that. I think it would be a great idea for your partner to ask. Uh, there are therapists about uh, marriage books that you can read and work on marriage stuff. Uh, but I think it's, be, it's a great opportunity for you to go to get your own counseling, to lay out this the same situation. And, and final point, uh, but this is, I think, really worth looking at. All damage that's done in your life, uh, any anyone who robs you of joy and peace in any sort of circumstance, anything that that is upsetting and bothersome to you and, and really wringing you out emotionally, those things uh, create a resentment. Uh, 
the right way to deal with that resentment is to go to God and say, God, I want you to take those resentments away from me. Uh, this is a human being that I love very much that has struggles, and they, they come by those struggles honestly. I have my struggles, and I want you to be patient with me. I want my partner to be patient with me, so I have to be patient, and I want you to give me that patience. That's the right way to deal with resent, resentments. And you may be doing that now, but here's the tricky thing is I think about the best we can do with resentments is give up about 99.9% of them. And then there's always that little bit that's left over. And then that piles up and piles up and piles up. And it's sort of underneath the radar because we dealt with the big picture of that. There's always a bit of hidden resentment, no matter how sanctified and holy we think we are about it. And here's the tricky thing. Those resentments come out more as the situation gets better. When you're when you're fighting this and trying to be Christian about it, you press down those resentments and and uh, you don't deal with them. But when things get better, it's like we're we're pulling back the rug that you hit it under. And now that all comes out. We see this uh, with the guys that we deal with who are getting out of addiction. Their family, you know, was just loving them and praying for them and agonizing over them being addicted. The moment they go into rehab, just all that anger comes flying out, like, oh, you kept us up late at night worrying about, you know. you know. So it's it's like all of it starts flooding in the moment they start doing well. And they're, you know, this is threatening to send them right back where they were. So let's deal with those uh, those hidden resentments now in a healthy way as things get better, knowing that's going to put us one step ahead of the game. That's all really, really fantastic stuff. Uh, it's a recurring theme that has come over the years in this show, but really applies here. Um, a much better question to ask than how bad does this have to be before I do something about it is how good could this be if I did something about right. it? Yeah, And that is going to be a much healthier overall and obviously get you better results and that's really the kind of thinking we want to push you towards we're going to move on to our final question here it comes in anonymously and it says the bible says do not fear over and over i know that but i hear a lot of what seems like bad ideas for example not wearing masks during a pandemic justified by saying i won't live in fear i know christians aren't supposed to live in fear but it feels like that isn't what that means if that makes sense what does living in fear actually mean Mm. A very cool, very timely question. And Lee, where have we started off? That's an awesome question. I, I, I love this. I mean, I, I think there's a couple things, a couple of different ways that I would take this. One is let's just be really, really clear about masks for a second. This is this is not a complex thing. All the science, all of the professionals, all the healthcare people that we trust and know tell us that the number one completely easy thing that we can all do to stop the the spread of a deadly virus is to wear a mask when we leave our house. Period. The end. Um, uh, there are certain people who want to say that that live you know wearing a mask is is uh, co-equal with living in fear. But what I would say is that not wearing a mask is living in a different kind of fear. It's living in the fear of what people think of me. Let's be really, really honest about this. When you are in a situation, and I don't know how many of you have been in the situation where you decided, I'm going to wear the mask, and you go there and nobody else is wearing it. I don't know. I don't know in Illinois if you guys have had that situation. In East Tennessee, that is a regular thing. I show up somewhere, I'm wearing a mask, and nobody else is wearing one, and I'm just the stooge wearing the mask. That is an awkward situation. And there is a moment of courage and fear that happens internally, which is, um, do I do this because I know it's right, even though there's a part of me that wants to be afraid of what other people think about me? This is actually where the point of courage is. We already know the science. We already know what the right thing to do is. The right thing to do is to wear the mask. The right thing to do is to do whatever our scientists and healthcare professionals and the CDC regulations say are the the most healthy things to, to curb the spread of this virus. 
there comes a point where we have to stand up against the idea that I, um, that I might be embarrassed or I might feel awkward or I might look like someone who's afraid. Um, I have to stand my ground against the moment where someone else might think about me that I appear to be someone who's afraid. I know that's a lot of, of, of kind of circular logic, but actually the whole thing is to say, I think that the fear comes in on the idea that I would somehow mitigate a behavior that I know has been absolutely proven to be the, the ethical, responsible, loving thing to do. I would somehow curb that behavior because I'm afraid of what you think about me. The courageous, faith-filled way to live that situation is to do the right thing, is to do the thing that we already know, that everything backs up. This is the right way. This is the loving way. This is the responsible way. This is the scientifically backed way for me to do this. A courageous believer in Jesus submits to a trusted authority and submits to the rule of love no matter what anybody else thinks about them. The really tricky thing in the middle of this particular situation is that some people are taking their own fear of what people think about them and they're turning turning that into courage. When actually the truth is they're afraid of what other people think about them. They know what the right thing to do is. They just won't do it. And we have to be real clear about where courage and fear actually lie in a situation like this. That is a wonderful place to start that off, as we all obviously all echo every bit of what Lee said there. And Glenn, I'd love to get you to pick us up here because he Lee ended us with talking about kind of wisdom and courage there. And I think it's a it's a great point. And it's important to kind of understand that flip side because courage isn't recklessness. Certainly in a biblical sense, right. courage isn't just saying, I will do whatever I want to do regardless of consequences. That's a lot more like narcissism. So it feels like, as, as Lee is pointing out here, people who are talking about not living in fear are trying to imply that they're being courageous. And that might be another right. very helpful thing to define here. Well, for sure. I think there, uh, there is a real mistake, not to sound overly theological about it, but I think there is a real problem with um, uh, assuming what the opposite of a virtue is. Uh, in terms of, for example, love, the opposite of love isn't really hate. It's more like indifference, like indifference to other people getting a disease that you might spread to them. Uh, but uh, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Uh, so looking at fear, you'd say, well, okay, the opposite of fear would be courage. But I think, uh, and we were talking about this uh, in an earlier question, but I think the opposite of fear might be something closer to wisdom, you know, that sense of knowing what's going on and not being gripped by fear, but having wisdom pushing that back and giving some understanding and some perspective and some insight into what's going on. And then, yeah, off of that, maybe you springboard into courageously moving forward because you know what you know and you you, you have that sense of, I can do this in a bold fashion and so on and so forth. So um, certainly uh, uh, courage and wisdom work together. So if you're saying, I'm being courageous in a way that might otherwise be pretty stupid, you're not being courageous. That's, that's not—courage and wisdom always go and, and work together. They fit together in the same space, complement and inform one another, reinforce one another. Um, the, I think the next thing I want us to look at here, uh, and the fellows and I were talking about this last night, but— um, when you're fighting for your rights, it's important to look at, are you fighting for the right to do something you know is wrong and destructive? You say, well, no, you know, I, that, I'm fighting for freedom and I got to be free. Right. But is that free to do something wrong and destructive, hurtful, either to yourself or to other people? Um, 
it's important to recognize, yes, if you're fighting for equal work for equal pay or uh, to not be racially profiled, those kinds of things, you're, you're struggling to achieve a right thing. You're fighting against things that are pushing that back. But most of the time, for most of us, when we're fighting for a right, we're actually fighting for the right to do the wrong thing. I just want to be free to do something that I know is wrong, and I'm declaring it in my own mind to be okay. I'm declaring that I I should be free to do it if I want to do it, and <laughs> now I sort of need to do it to prove that I can do it, and you can't tell me what to do, and you're not my real father. Uh this isn't a, a mature behavior. Uh, it, it is exactly the way I look at the world in a very immature way of saying, I don't want to be told what to do. I don't, I don't want to have to take a number and wait in line. I don't want to wait until they call my boarding group to get on the plane. I, I, I don't like uh, complying with anything. I'm a, by nature, I'm a rebellious person. I'm, I'm a scoundrel by nature. I, I don't want to obey in any way. Uh, but generally speaking, if I had my way, things would be worse. So <laughs> I have to recognize I I can't fight for that. I'm supposed to pull up and recognize, uh, wait your turn, uh, let the process play itself out. It's not about you. Uh, there are other people in the world, and and uh, be unselfish. And I think that's really the point I want to land on here yeah. is for you— Let's not ask about what you should be free to do. Let's not talk about you know, boldly and courageously doing something that you know is not smart. Let's talk about being unselfish. Mm. Uh, where are you being unselfish in your life, and where are you making a more selfish Amen. choice? Now, I want to get on the plane first because I want it for me. That I understand this lady's pregnant and needs to get off of her feet, but you know what? Uh, maybe walk it off and let me get on this plane because you know that's being selfish, y'all. I and I have that thought. I I'm a bad person. I this is I'm working. I'm a work in progress here, y'all. But it's about recognizing I have to make an unselfish choice. I need to check myself and say, look, if, if this is just a purely uh, thing, uh, just a thing for me that I want for myself that's either going to hurt me or those around me that I love, that's where I need to uh, uh, relent that and let God give me a little bit more character ha to handle that situation. And that's all really, really great stuff. And Jed, I'd love to get you to close us out here by maybe maybe zooming in on this uh question. We've done a lot of great stuff about the idea of living in fear, but when we get down to that, not what people are trying to make it mean, what would it actually mean to live in fear versus not? Great question. So you are right. The Bible does say, do not fear or do not be afraid over and over and over again, or fear not, uh, depending on the translation. And uh, Yes, that's right. Uh, we love to cover all of our bases here on the Say That Podcast. And I'll tell you how I read it, uh, and you know, hopefully it's useful to you. I think what it's saying, regardless of the translation you use, is don't let fear make your decisions. Mm. I think that's what it's saying. Because it's not telling you to somehow not experience the emotion of fear, because that's not really possible. Everybody feels an emotional impulse to be afraid. What we have is a choice with what we do with the fear and the worry and the concern in that moment. And when we have a choice, now we're talking about, am I going to let fear make my decisions? And of course, the, the thing is, it, it starts in that initial moment, but then it snowballs from there. So again, as, as a starting point, yes, it says, do not fear, do not be afraid, fear not. And the way I would encourage you to look at that, at least as a place to begin, is that God does not want to let does not want me to let fear make my decisions. Now, that said, here's the interesting thing, is that I am, I'm 100% with Glenn that we've got a contest between fear and wisdom. 
Um, we've got a contest between fear, uh, which wants to define reality for us, and wisdom, which wants to give us a more expansive view of reality and of what's going on. And I think the interesting thing is that, um, in fact, godly wisdom is the ultimate antithesis of fear, but, but in fact, I would say even human wisdom um, is antithetical to fear. And I can give you an example uh, of that. You know, human wisdom still respects the risks and dangers of an undertaking. It's just not letting the fact that there is a risk be the final determining factor. Mm, Yeah. There are all kinds of things in life that are cool and that are good, but that have a certain amount of risk um, inherent in them. Therefore, we want to approach this a certain way. Um, it, my wife and I like to do a little bit of scuba diving. Scuba diving is super fun, man. Most of the world is underwater, so it lets you see things you wouldn't get to see otherwise and um, you know, see all kinds of God's creation. It's super cool. It's super neat. You are also breathing underwater, so there's a, there's a risk that's associated with this. Now, Fear would come to you and it would say, well, this is dangerous, therefore you shouldn't do it. That would be the first offer that fear would make, and we we actually don't want to do that because that's letting fear make our decisions. But the second offer that fear would make, which goes right along with a number of things that Lee was saying, is if we're not going to just reject it out of hand, fear would say, well, bro up and just do it. Don't worry about how to do it smart. Just do it. Just jump in there and just scuba hard, which is not a thing that a person can do. There's no such thing as that. Wisdom interrupts that whole process. Wisdom actually, weirdly, again, it's it's the theme of this episode, wisdom begins with humility. Wisdom says, if other people are doing this, there's probably a smart way to do it that I don't know and I need to be taught so that I can do it the smart way too. And it turns out, with scuba diving as an example, yeah, there's a smart way to do it that's actually very safe and no problem, and you can see the fishies and be under the deep blue sea, and it's super cool, and it's it's plenty safe, and it's great. And Wisdom says there is that uh, smart way to do this, and I'm, I'm going to find out what it is. I'm, I'm going to pursue it. So again, we have here this choice between fear and and wisdom. And take it back to your question, you know, the Bible says, do not fear, do not be afraid, fear not. So to follow that, what we want to do is begin by saying, I'm not going to let fear make my decisions, either by having me reject things out of hand or in a weirdly reactionary way, just run unprepared headlong into them because I'm trying to prove something to myself and to other people. Instead, I'm going to pursue the path of wisdom. Uh, and that includes godly wisdom, seeing things from God's perspective, but also human wisdom, finding people who are subject matter experts, finding people who know stuff who, that I don't, who can teach me and inform me and show me how to take smart risks that make sense and that do things in a safe way as possible. You can absolutely do that, even if you don't have a ton of people in the culture around you doing it. You can do that, and it will pay a ton of dividends in your life. That is all fantastic stuff from these guys. The one thing I'll tack on the end here is it's important to understand that when we talk about living in fear versus not, which these guys did a great job breaking down, what we're talking about is a process. And the interesting yeah. thing is you could go through that process, you could do exact, it exactly as right as you can, and you could still end up at an answer that is pretty extreme. Um, you know, I'm as just talking there, you know, I'm looking at uh, the first couple of chapters of Luke, the Christmas story, where do not be afraid says is comes up a lot. Yeah. Because there's guys who are huge and made of fire who keep appearing in front of people, and their first line is, don't be afraid. So my reading of that is, I know, I know. We have to get past this part because I have to tell you something that's important. But a lot of that living in fears is we're talking about not just living in that lizard brain part of yourself that immediately reacts to something, but you could push through that. Let's say you lived, we'll take coronavirus as an example, because like most people, my brain can't hold any other things currently. But, you know, let's say you lived in a very, very high infection rate place, uh, you know, what didn't have a handle on it. You might have an immediate response of, oh, gosh, there's a virus. I can never leave the house again. It's all doomed. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Now, you might calm down, let that go over, look at the facts, and decide, I need to stay in my house for an extended period of time. That is the same conclusion 
of freaking out and doing a very a Scooby-Doo cartoon version of nailing boards across your front door. But that's not living in fear. That's calming down, looking at the actual facts, the actual reality, and making a wise judgment based on that. So I think it is very important to look at that here to know that uh, just because you are are doing a careful thing does not indicate living in fear, does not indicate letting fear make your decisions. Sometimes that is the smart thing to do. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr. Dot com. You can, of course, join us every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Central for Woo. our Bridge Livecast over Woo. at Facebook.com slash The Bridge Chicago. If you can't catch it live, they are all uh, archived on the videos page on our Facebook page. Check out the song this week. We've been talking a lot about fear with a classic Jed song called Bigger Than My Fears. Yes. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. It's disease night tonight at the pit. Featuring Release the Locust, opening for Disease Spreader. <laughs> God, I'm here and I'm laying down. All the things I'm afraid of here and now. Because I'm tired and I need you to take this off of me. You're strong and you're fierce and you're bigger than my fears. God, I know that I need your peace. Cause the fear is a lie that's killing me. Cause I'm not in control. I can't fix it on my own. God, I need you to give me. Start of that song. Here we go, sing this with me now. God, I'm here and I'm laying down. All the things I'm afraid of here and now. Because I'm tired and I need you to take this off of me. I'm out, I need more, so that's what I'm asking for.